This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intricasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss with Professor Philip Alston, the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty and Human Rights, his recently released report, Climate Change and Poverty. Professor Alston, welcome to the program. Thank you. Professor Alston's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. On background, since this is my 10th climate crisis-related podcast over the past two-plus years, I'll note again our planet is currently suffering its sixth mass extinction, for the previous five were caused by high levels of atmospheric carbon. Presently, we are emitting carbon considerably faster, at least 10 times faster, than the worst of these four previous mass extinctions that exterminated ostensibly uh, all of life on Earth. Per the UN's IPCC report, if we continue to emit carbon emissions at our current rate, we will reach 4.5 degrees Celsius of warming by the end of this century substantially more warming than would be required to tip the world into what's termed a hothouse or runaway warming state. Nevertheless, of the 195 signatories to the 2015 Paris Climate Accord, only seven are quote-unquote in range of meeting their carbon emissions pledge, pledges that today are considered inadequate. Among other realities, per the recent news headlines, Brazil appears intent on releasing over the next decade a year's worth of combined Chinese and American carbon emissions, 13.2 gigatons, via its policy to open the Amazon for economic development. Approximately 100,000 fires burned across the Amazon in 2017. As for China and the U.S., that account for approximately half of annual global carbon emissions. The former is planning or building 300 coal plants around the world. The U.S., a country already with profound disparities in health care and health equity, and one that could cut its carbon emissions by 60% of the average American lived life like the average EU citizen, is led by a president that has infamously termed the crisis a hoax and does not believe Americans have a constitutional right to a climate system capable of sustaining life. One final note, Professor Alston is also the author of a May 2018 report titled Report of the Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty and Human Rights, on his mission to the U.S. I highly recommend listeners read that report as well. So with that as possibly too lengthy background, uh, Professor Austin, let me begin with the question, what is the role of your office of the U.N. Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty and Human Rights? Well, uh, the U.N. Human Rights Council has a system where they appoint a range of special rapporteurs who are actually uh, independent experts who are not UN officials, actually not paid, um, but they are supposed to be expert in particular areas and to present reports that look at uh, the situation in particular countries or at particular issues which uh, the council should be doing more about. Thank you. So let's more specifically, how did this report again, climate change and poverty, uh, come about? Was it a request or was it something you initiated? Uh, no, it was something that I initiated. Um, 
what I'm trying to do is to look at issues that are at the intersection of human rights and poverty. Um, and climate change is an issue that is, first of all, going to uh, hit the poor uh, much uh, more significantly than others. And secondly, that I think will have really dramatic uh, human rights implications. So it's a, a really crucial topic, which is generally not being given the attention it deserves. And that's what you say uh, or note in your report. But before I ask you some questions about the specifics, in context of the UN's purpose, so formed in 45 to, among other things, maintain international peace and security, achieve international cooperation, and serve as a center for harmonizing the actions of nations, I applaud your efforts, certainly. But the question I really have to ask, and and since I've been aware and studying this subject for several decades, uh, so this question I've had in mind for that long, I again applaud mm -hmm. your effort, but what took so long for this report to be published uh, by the UN? Well, the, the UN is a little bit like the US government. Uh, in other words, it's not a single entity. Um, when one is overseas outside the US, it's often amusing to hear people talk about the U.S. government. Sometimes that means the president. Sometimes it means a particular department, defense, interior, treasury, whatever. The U.N. is the same. Uh, it divides up. There's a whole lot of different agencies. There's the secretary general who sometimes speaks out on issues. There are different agencies dealing with environment or health or whatever. Uh, and there's the human rights side of it, of which I am a part. I think it's fair to say that the... Um, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is essentially a UN initiative that is now some three decades old and that there are certainly parts of the UN that have been speaking out about climate change for a very long time. Yes, correct. Um, thank you. So let's go to uh, the specifics of the report. So your report's summary comment begins with climate change, and I'm quoting, will have a devastating consequences for people in poverty, even under the best case scenario, hundreds of millions will face food insecurity, forced migration, disease, and death. Staying the course will be disastrous for the global economy and put vast numbers in poverty. You go on to say uh, very directly or bluntly uh, that uh, governments, human rights community, and others have failed to, and I'm quoting again, seriously address climate change for decades. Too many countries continue to take short-sighted steps. States are, are giving marginal attention to human rights, and uh, it remains a marginal concern for most actors. Um, and specific to human rights bodies, you say, quote-unquote, most human rights bodies have barely begun to grapple what climate change pretends for human rights, and say, although climate change has been on the human rights agenda for well over a decade, it remains a marginal concern. So... What's your understanding or your explanation of why the human rights community, the, U the UN Human Rights Council, amongst others, uh, has been uh, late to the game or has not given this the priority it, it deserves? Well, um, I would never expect too much of the UN Human Rights Council itself because that's a governmental body. There are 47 governments. Uh, until not so long ago, the U.S. was part of that. Uh, my own country, Australia, is part of it. 
uh, these are countries that are basically in denial about climate change, so they're not going to really take action, even in the human rights context. Um, more troubling, more surprising is the fact that the human rights community, civil society groups and various others have actually done all too little about climate change. And I think there's a range of different explanations there. Partly they sort of silo themselves off and say, well, environmental groups have to deal with that. It's not a human rights issue. Partly they say this is scientific. Um, it's not something we can really add much to. Um, and there's a general resistance to getting into these deeper structural issues, no matter how central their impact on human rights really is. I think we're starting to see that change gradually. And there is a People's Climate Summit that is going to take place in... Uh, the 23rd. Uh, late in... Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think that will begin to bring a lot of the human rights and other groups together to really start taking this much more seriously. Thank you. Just, uh, I smiled when you said the U.S. used to be a member of the Council and they withdrew from the Council after your May 18 report that I cited, which evidently got the administration quite upset. Uh, Nikki Haley was quoted as saying uh, the report that you published was that it was patently ridiculous for the U.N. to examine poverty in America and uh, stated the U.S. withdrew from the Council, calling the Council, quote-unquote, a cesspool of bias. So I, my congratulations to you uh, for evoking <laughs> that response. I will say, too, relative siloing, uh, it is, uh, you may not be aware, but the U.S. healthcare industry, if it was its own country, would be the 13th largest greenhouse uh, polluter in the world. And uh, it's been estimated that U.S. Uh, healthcare industry uh, GHG pollution alone kills 100,000, approximately or upwards of 100,000 Americans uh, annually. And that's, of course, not counting the effect it has on uh, people outside the U.S. Let me go to uh, how your report was received. You presented it in Geneva in late June. I'm curious to know uh, the reaction both within the U.N., and outside the UN to your report, or what your, what's been your experience uh, relative to the, to the response? Uh, well, uh, again, a handful of governments have said this is great. You've really um, you know, reminded us of the need to bring this into the human rights area. But at the same time, the European Union was actually proposing, this is all very bureaucratic and boring, but it, it's the stuff of much international diplomacy was proposing that the discussion on climate change be made into a topic that should only be discussed every second year by the Council rather than every year. Uh, in other words, it's really not all that important. We can just do it once every couple of years. So there's a curious disconnect between uh, the uh, clarion calls being issued by the EU and others in the broader context and what they and others are prepared to do in the human rights setting. But I think more importantly for me is that a lot of human rights groups uh, have been in touch with me, have said that this has been a wake-up call for them and they are now starting to examine much more seriously how they can contribute to the overall debate. Okay, thank you. You do note in your report 
The European Court of Human Rights has not directly addressed climate change. You note Human Rights Watch has given little attention, has been given to the overall impact of climate change on human rights. And per the every other year, you do use the phrase that the behavior has been to kick the can down the road, and you cite uh, previous efforts uh, noted by the meeting locations, Toronto, Rio, Kyoto, and now uh, Paris. Uh, let, let me ask you specifically about the issue of climate refugees. The UN, uh, the World Bank, and, and others have uh, guesstimated uh, numbers by 2050. They range from 150 million to upwards of 1 billion by 2050 again. How is the UN addressing, particularly since this problem uh, is, and I'm sure you're aware of the political um, uh, response to date in this country, certainly, uh, as well elsewhere, this problem or this issue, the crisis is feeding the far right, even as some center-left political parties, uh, meaning their preference for harsher immigration restrictions. So, again, the, what's, what's the discussion with the UN relative to these increasing numbers of climate refugees? Uh, again, I think there is sort of denial. So the statistics are out there. I don't think they're very easily contestable. Uh, we see the uh, rising sea levels um, growing rapidly. That's going to push a lot of people away from coastlines all around the world, not just in poor developing countries. Uh, so climate refugees are going to be a reality. But the issue has become, become so controversial in terms of the influx of Syrian and uh, other refugees into Europe, the uh, influx from Central America into mm-hmm. the United States, uh, that borders are going down uh, all over the place. But that's not going to be a, uh, an intelligent uh, or viable response to the sort of vastly greater scale of uh, refugee flows that are going to be provoked by climate change. Um, One of the risks, and this is one of the things that my report tries to point to, of course, is that these issues are not just uh, related to social uh, conditions, but will also very directly raise human rights concerns. Um, so it depends how governments react. They could simply uh, erect walls and barriers and take ever harsher measures to keep people out. That will have huge human rights consequences. Uh, or they could be trying to work out much more uh, manageable ways of coping with the vast numbers that are going to be in need of resettlement. Okay, thank you again. Let, let me ask, I, you're a, uh, by training, you're an international criminal law professor and you teach at NYU. So in that context, I have a related question. You may have seen uh, Alex Koch's article yesterday in The Guardian uh, titled Death and Destruction, This is David Koch's Sad Legacy. Uh, regardless of, of the article, I'm sure you're familiar with the Koch brothers or Koch Industries, uh, they're the 17th largest U.S. producer of greenhouse gas emissions ahead of ExxonMobil. So relative to your training in international criminal law, my question is, and this has been, and uh, Alex uh, Koch actually uh, makes mention of this, I'm curious to know your perspective. Uh, given the environmental devastation perpetrated by uh, the now deceased uh, David Koch and Koch Industries, should executives like him or corporations like him 
uh, be prosecuted for any special kind of international crime? I think we're uh, getting a bit ahead of ourselves there. Um, the problem is that governments generally are doing almost nothing about the fossil fuel mm -hmm. industry. Um, well, the they're IMF subsidizing up, it. <laughs> so they're, they're, yeah, they're, they're that's doing exactly. A lot. So the IMF put out this report saying that, in fact, there are more than $5 trillion a year in subsidies mm -hmm. that go to fossil fuel industries from governments. And obviously, the first step would be to simply cut those subsidies and, and use some of that money for transformative uh, economics. But if that's not happening, then it's very unrealistic to expect um, governments generally to prosecute one or more particular individuals. But I do think it's very important, as the Guardian article uh, did to shine the spotlight on industry because there's no doubt that this is an absolutely uh, chronic example of self-enrichment uh, at the expense of the global community. Uh, but it's true of what a lot of corporate actors are doing. Uh, their absolute refusal to contemplate the deleterious health consequences of their industrial pursuits um, knowing, presumably, that their own children and grandchildren are going to suffer immensely, uh, but they remain unmoved, uh, and corporate bodies generally are really not uh, getting together to come up with any sort of concerted um, climate change strategies. Mm -hmm. Okay, and, and the article did note uh, Mr. Koch was the 11th richest man in the world, estimated net worth of over $50 billion. Um, Relative to legal issues or legal matters, I'm sure you've been following any number now of uh, lawsuits uh, in the U.S. It's the noted Juliana uh, versus the U.S. case, which I vaguely uh, referenced in my introduction, uh, that being DOJ is arguing that the plaintiffs have, quote-unquote, no fundamental constitutional right to a stable uh, climate system. There was a favorable decision recently in the Netherlands. What's your assessment of how these... Uh, lawsuits are advancing? Um, I look at it in different ways. On the one hand, I think that um, lawsuits can play a very important role. Uh, the Dutch uh, case, the Urgenda case, is still up for consideration by the highest court in the country to see if they confirm it or not. Uh, the Colombian Constitutional Court has declared that there is uh, an obligation on the government to take serious action to combat uh, climate change. I think these court decisions are very important, but I also don't think we should get them out of perspective. They're not going to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. They're just one element in helping to draw attention to the illegitimacy of existing policies. But I think until there is major uh, citizen mobilization, uh, governments are not going to get the message, and courts are not really going to deliver it on their own. Okay. Thank you. Um, you mentioned the upcoming climate summit, September 23rd. This has gotten pressed in part because uh, the Swede a teenager is sailing across the country, or across the ocean, rather, uh, Greta Thunberg, to attend. What, beyond this, what, what other activities or what 
more broadly, the Human Rights Council, amongst others, what will be on the UN's agenda uh, beyond the IPCC meetings and reports uh, to try to address this? Or what work would, would your office do or your work? How will your work go uh, forward that's related? Uh, well, on the uh, on the 18th and 19th of September, there's actually a very big conference uh, here at New York University Law School, which will bring together all of the key human rights and environmental civil society groups, whether it's Greenpeace, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, uh, but also a lot of uh, developing country um, groups that are working on these issues. Uh, I think we're going to start to see a, a, a rapidly changing consciousness within the human rights community that will actually start to take more serious action. Uh, there's also going to be a um, a student day of action on the Friday, the 20th of September, where I think children will be encouraged to walk out of school and take other public steps to insist to their governments that they're fed up, that they don't want their own future mortgaged in the way that uh, it is being at present. Uh, so I think we're going to start to see a rather different approach mm -hmm. in quite a few countries. Is Extinction Rebellion invited to the meeting? Or the party? Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm not sure about that. I mean, there's no reason why they wouldn't be relevant to it. Mm -hmm. I do have a related question. We do know uh, institutes of higher learning, uh, academic uh, colleges and universities have been slow to divest. So as the healthcare industry, by the way, in <clears throat> fossil fuels, what's the discussion in New York City and at NYU? Uh, you know, I'm not uh, particularly well informed on those uh, particular debates. Um, I think it is very encouraging that even hedge funds and others are now starting to, mm -hmm. not because of any uh, altruistic commitment, but simply saying, listen, guys, these are not good investments. Uh, the future of fossil fuels is surely limited, and we need to be moving our money elsewhere. Um, but whether that's translating in terms of official policies among universities and others, uh, I think it's a pretty slow response, mm -hmm. but I'm certainly in favor of uh, pressuring as many corporate uh, and other actors as possible to divest from uh, industries that are doing immense uh, and perhaps even irreparable harm to our environment. Just to make note, uh, Moody's was reported recently hired a firm that's uh, going to do some calculations in factoring in uh, Moody's ratings as it relates to to what extent or how quickly do these assets become stranded assets as we uh, work to transition to uh, renewable energies. Um, your conclusion is pretty pretty blunt. Um, again, I appreciate your writing style, certainly. Um, human rights community, with few notable exceptions, has been every bit as complacent as most governments in the fact of the ultimate challenge to mankind represented by climate change. And you conclude, climate change is, among other things, an unconscionable assault on the poor. Uh, very straightforward language. What would you, um, as a final comment, what would you like... Uh, listeners to take away from uh, from your report uh, and reading it? Well, I, I think, I mean, there are two 
sort of separate elements. One is just the overall impact of climate change and the uh, unbelievable complacency that most of us are guilty of in terms of saying, yeah, yeah, we know it's happening, yeah, it's bad and something's got to be done, but we're not going to do it right now. We'll wait and we should know that that's going to be too late. Uh, And the second is that if one is at all concerned about development in developing countries or poverty in our own countries, then climate change is going to undo most of the good work that's been done over decades now because the poor are going to be hit hard and much worse than the rest. They're the ones who can't uh, don't live in the structures that can resist um, the issues. That they're the ones who can't get away from the huge fluctuations in temperature. They don't have resources to fall back on when they're forced out of their homes and so on. All countries need to start planning now uh, to, to spell out what they're going to do to protect the most vulnerable parts of their population from climate change. The rich will always take care of themselves. Uh, the poor will be left to, uh, to bake in the mm-hmm. high temperatures. Yes, you cite Pope Francis' comment, a brutal act of injustice towards the poor and future generations. And your report also notes developing countries will bear an estimated 75% of the cost of the climate crisis, despite the poorest half of the world's population causing just 10% of carbon dioxide emissions. Uh, so not uh, surprising, the poor or vulnerable are the most exposed uh, by definition. Yeah, it's what I refer, what I refer to as uh, climate apartheid, in fact, because the rich are going to be fine and the poor are going to suffer the vast majority of the consequences. Yes, thank you. That was the phrase that got picked up widely, so I appreciate your including that. Maybe just I'll throw, lastly, your Secretary General, the UN Secretary General, uh, Gutierrez believes that time's running out. We have basically a year to start making substantial reductions in emissions. I have to ask you personally, maybe, or would, would like to, what's your own personal level of optimism or pessimism here? Um, you know, it's pretty hard to be optimistic uh, given the levels of complacency. But on the other hand, surely humanity, when they start to see that this is a real threat and it's going to affect every single one of us, mm-hmm. will be capable of getting their acts together. I think that's why it's incumbent on all of us as individuals to do everything we can. Uh, and the fact that you've devoted so many shows to this over the past uh, few years is, is terrific, but others need to follow suit, particularly in the mainstream media. Absolutely. In fact, U.S. reporting on this subject has been poor, to say the least. I know Columbia is trying to, journalism is trying to uh, give priority to this subject. But with that, uh, Professor Austin, we're at our time. So I'd like to say thank you very much for this opportunity. Uh, Again, highly recommend. I'll cite a link uh, to your report as well as your May 18th report on poverty in the U.S. Uh, Very helpful uh, for us who work in health policy. So thank you again. My pleasure. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. 
Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.